0: Good morning, Village Church. I've met some of you who are our guests this morning. Welcome. Uh, for those of you who are not met, I'm Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at the Village Church. And we've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes. And last week we found ourselves at the halfway point, halfway through the book of Ecclesiastes. And I don't know about you, when we started the book of Ecclesiastes, if you felt like maybe this is a book that's very heady, it's maybe very philosophical. And I think we found out on Monday that this book is actually extremely practical. Because last Sunday we looked at the the vanity, the, the uselessness, the meaninglessness of pursuing wealth as an end in life. And as part of that, in part of that passage, we talked about investing because actually the Bible talks about investing and Ecclesiastes talks about investing. Remember that investment that would go bad. And then on Monday morning broke the news of the FTX scandal perhaps the largest Ponzi scheme in the history of our country, if not the world, some may say, and connected in some pretty shady ways to to people in power. And so as Ecclesiastes talked last week about the ones in power watching over them and then them watching over them, I want to tell you Ecclesiastes is not just philosophical. It's intensely practical. And if you don't read the news or if you live under a rock or whatever, you know, but if you didn't get that on Monday, I hope you've got it between Sundays. This is a very practical book of the Bible. And this morning, the teacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, gives us some more practical principles that are going to apply to all seasons of life. Matter of fact, most students of Ecclesiastes look at this section, this next section of the book, and they see it as really an answer, practical answers to. Well, to the things that the author brought up in chapter 5 in Ecclesiastes, that that famous sort of song on the timelessness of everything. There is a time for this and a time for that, a time for this and a time for that. And this morning, you're going to see words that are repeated from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, like life and death, or good times and bad times, you know, birth and death, things like this. And you'll see the connection between Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and This is true for this entire section of Ecclesiastes, but it's particularly true for this section of chapter 7. And although this passage, this next section rather, is going to apply, you know, to all of life, these principles apply to all of life, the passage that we're in specifically this morning applies mostly to the seasons of life when we face adversity, And I think that's probably a good and helpful thing because all of us face seasons of adversity. Perhaps you are facing a season of adversity now. I would gather to say all of us, like we have some kind of adversity that we're facing this morning. And so I think we find some good news here, because it's often hard for us to see the good in the midst of what we sense is bad. It's hard for us to to trust God for our good sometimes in seasons that really don't feel very good. And here in this section, the teacher gives us five practical lessons about adversity. This is just very, very practical stuff, and it begins in verse 10. Look at it with me. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage for man? Man. For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? And the first lesson we learned this morning is this, that it's meaninglessness for mankind to know the ultimate meaning of adversity. Like when you and I are trying to find the ultimate meaning in our adversity, as smart as we are or as much wisdom as we can gather as much as we can talk with other people who share that wisdom with us, outside of relationship with God and Christ, where, where we get more wisdom or the perfect wisdom of God, if we're just living our lives under the sun, S-U-N, not the sun, S-O-N, it's, vainly, it's meaningless for us to think that we're going to find the ultimate meaning in life. And if you're not yet a Christian and you're with us this morning, this is just something that the Bible teaches, that outside of relationship with God, we can't figure it out on our own. Have you figured that out yet? When we go through times of adversity, we are asking the question, why? Why? Why am I facing this kind of adversity? And at the end of the day, you know what the answer is? We don't really know. At the end of the day, we don't know. We don't know why you are facing adversity in your work or in your marriage or with your kids or in that relationship or with that health issue that you have. Like, we, we, we don't know the ultimate answer to that. Only God knows the answer to that question. And it was determined before the foundation of the world, according to his purposes. And so only he knows the ultimate purpose for the adversity that you are going through today or that I am going through today. It's all connected to his eternal plan. This is what he says, whatever has come to be has already been named. In talking about naming, he's going back to Genesis where God named all kinds of things like the morning and the evening and all of the things that were named in creation. God named them because he created them and he has sovereignty over them because he created them. And the same is true for me and for you. God created us. Matter of fact, God named us. God knows your name before your parents do. And so God is sovereign over our lives because he created us just like he created everything else. You might say, well, I don't like that. (laughs) I want to be able to control my own outcomes. I want to be able to get out of adversity. I want to be able to find a way away from it. And I know I, I sometimes don't like it either. And I want to find ways out of it as you do. But to this obvious response, the teacher knows we're all going to respond this way. I don't like that. I want to create my own outcomes. The teacher says, and it is known what man is and that he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. (laughs) Even if we wanted to change our circumstances, we are ultimately powerless to do it in any kind of ultimate sense in the face of the one who set them all into motion, again, before the foundation of the world. And men and women throughout human history have had this obvious response. I don't like this. I want to self-determine my own life. I want to create my own circumstances. I want to get out of my adversity and get into more prosperity. Look, God knows that we all think this way. The author knows that we all think this way. Men and women throughout human history have had this obvious response. And so the Bible knows it, and the Bible speaks to it. The Bible wants us to know. God wants us to know. In Isaiah chapter 45, it says, woe to him who strives with him who formed him. An Old Testament example. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or Your work has no handles. Like, does this, the, the pot criticize the potter? And we pick up some other themes in the New Testament. This is true throughout human history. But who are you, O oh man, Romans 9, to answer back to God, well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Because we don't know the ultimate meaning of adversity, and we can't change it even if we wanted to, the author says the more we talk about it, the more we pontificate about it to ourselves or to one another, the more foolish we become. The more words, the more vanity. And what advantage is that to man? For who knows what is the good of man while he lives these few days in his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. Arguing with God about our adversity and all of the exact reasons for our adversity in the author's estimation is a waste of breath. It's a waste of breath to argue with God about your adversity. It is a waste of breath with God for, for, to, to, to go to God and say, I need to know all the exact reasons and I need to know them now. It's a waste of breath to do that to God. But you know what is not a waste of breath? What is not a waste of breath, especially if you are a believer and you trust Christ, what is not a waste of breath is to pray to God and to tell God what you're feeling and what you're sensing and what you're thinking and to ask God and to go to him. That that is not a waste of breath. And so I just thought for a a, a moment this morning, since that's not a waste of breath, this is like atypical, I'm just gonna ask you to bow your head and your heart right now. And I wanna ask you to consider the thing that is the greatest adversity that you're facing right now. Just, Just play along with me for a moment. Bow your heads, bow your hearts, and consider for a moment, just right now in this moment, what's the greatest adversity that you are facing right now? And can I ask you to just Just spend a moment now praying to God about what that is. And in the moment now, just maybe ask him what might be in it. And he might give you a glimpse. And in this short moment, he may not. And he's good either way. If he does, I want you to talk to him about that for a moment. If he doesn't, I just want you to ask him that he would increase your faith to trust him in the midst of this moment of adversity. And even if you're not praying out loud, this is not a waste of breath. Just take a moment to tell him about it. Thanks for playing along, and I hope you can, you can pick up that thought and continue that sometime today. There is an adversity I know that you're facing, and arguing about it is a waste of breath. Praying about it is not. Look, although it's impossible to know the ultimate meaning of our adversity, there are some practical realities about adversity that are more helpful than others. There is some kind of good that can be found In adversity in general and in your adversity in particular. And if we are certain to face adversity in a life that's lived in a fallen and a broken world, that's really more about adversity than it is about prosperity, isn't it? I mean we have phrases like, Life is hard and then you die, which sounds so great, you know, but but it do, we laugh because it does, it does tug on our, our heartstring a little bit because it does tug on a reality that we know. Like Yes, life is hard. We will face a lot of adversity. Things can tend to go difficult more than they can to go e- be easy. Like it, it can tend to be hard. And so it would help us to know the things about adversity that are more helpful than others, to see the greatest good in our adversity. And the teacher knows this. He's not just a pessimist. He knows this. And so... As he starts into this section, he goes through this series of Proverbs. And you might have recognized it as you looked in your Bible, as you listened to Josh read it, that it's formed that way as Proverbs. And nine times he's going to say something like, it's good or it's better or it's more better or it's more good. And he's going to give us these contrasts and help us to see the good that's in the midst of our adversity. And that starts in chapter 7, verse 1. Look at it with me a good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. The second lesson we learned this morning is this, that it's more helpful to think about our ultimate adversary or adversity rather, and that's death. It's better to think about death which is our ultimate adversity in the end, than to live our lives ignoring it. That's what the teacher says. I mean, most of us don't think about death every day. Do you think about death every day? I don't think about death every day. Most of us don't want to think about death every day, but the teacher says thinking about death is more helpful than avoiding it. And the question is why? Why is that? And I think he shares with us a couple of really practical reasons. The more, you know, if we think about our death, it will give us a desire to have a good name while we are alive. A good name is better than precious ointment the day of death than the day of birth. Like when we think about our, our death in the end, when we think about the, the end of it, it gives us a greater desire to live our lives in, in godly and fruitful and meaningful ways in the midst of it. And that's a really great reality about thinking about death. As we think about death, it affects our life. You know, maybe you've been in like uh, some kind of leadership development track or you've been in some kind of discipleship program and you've gone through this exercise of writing your own eulogy. Um, I've been through that a couple of times and... uh you, you you sit down and think about it, and actually this week as I prepared for this sermon, it just gave me pause, and I sat down and thought about it again. Like, I want people to say things like, Matt loved Jesus more than anything else, and Matt was a good and loving husband, and he, Matt was a great father and spent lots of time with his kids and investing in them. And Matt loved the church, Matt loved his local church, but Matt loved the church, and he thought it was the hope of the world so he spent his time trying to help other pastors and churches be healthy and whole and be effective in the things that they're doing and you know matt loved his neighbors and so he spent time with them and he invited people into his home and he loved hospitality and sharing i mean i could go on i could write my own eulogy and maybe this week it would be a good opportunity for you to just sit down and write down some of those thoughts it feels kind of morbid doesn't it I mean, not more morbid than some of the stuff you watch on Netflix probably, but, like, it feels kind of morbid to think about, but it's really good to think about because it informs the way we live. If I think about what is going to be said of me when I die, God willing, it will impact the way I live while I am living. And if you think about your death, it will remind you that there will be a day when adversity and suffering will be over. This is another good reason. If we have faith in Jesus, a good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. When we think about our death, we also think about the fact that life is hard and there will be a day when it's going to be over and there's no more suffering is what Revelation says for those who follow Christ. And one place we're most likely to think about death, if we don't think about it every day, is at a funeral. Do you remember the last time you were at a funeral? I mean, this is why the teacher says it's better to go to the house of mourning. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. The teacher's saying, it's actually better to go to a funeral than a wedding. Now, I know that gives you pause. It gives me pause. I like weddings. Weddings are happy. Weddings are fun. At weddings, there's dancing. At weddings, there's great food. At weddings, there's people that you love. At weddings, there's a lot of rejoicing. And there is some rejoicing at a funeral, and there is some joy in the memories of another person's death. But like, a wedding and a funeral are two different things. And the teacher says it's actually better to go to the funeral than to go to the wedding. And the reason is the funeral reminds you of the way you should be living in the midst of your life. The wedding is just, it's a celebration and it kind of takes your mind away from the realities of life. So the teacher tells us, he wants to tell us that there is some good in all of adversity. And he starts with the greatest adversity of death. He wants to say there's there's some good in all adversity. So he starts with the greatest adversity at the end, which is death, to prove his point. But he continues to move on to some other lessons. We see another one here in verse 3. Look at it with me. He said, sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of the fools is in the house of myrrh. I think the third lesson that we see here this morning is it's more helpful to gain wisdom through adversity than to try to live without it. It's more helpful to gain wisdom through adversity than to try to live without adversity. Our hearts are or should be most glad when we gain wisdom. Wisdom brings a deeper kind of joy and gladness than than just sort of going out to, to parties and dinners and and all of these sorts of things. That's why he says sorrow is better than laughter for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. That seems strange. By sadness of face the heart is made glad. See, wisdom comes through adversity. It doesn't generally come through prosperity. And wisdom is the thing that, that, gives us the deepest joy. And and I think we can see that in joyful people that are older, that are on in their years. Their past levels, retirement years, they're sort of on into the golden years, and they're most joyful about the wisdom that God has given them. I mean, they can't do maybe some of the same things that they've done before, but there's all kinds of joy, a deeper kind of joy, in knowing that through the years they've gained wisdom, that they can live their life by now and they can pass along to their children and to their grandchildren, and you just see a joyful older person. It's all over the face, and it covers their life, and it's obvious. Joy comes through wisdom and this is why the teacher says it. This is why he repeats the idea about the funeral home. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of myrrh. Joy comes through wisdom, and wisdom comes through adversity. Joy comes through wisdom, and wisdom comes through adversity. Right now, I'm finishing up this a master's class. It's not a master's degree, uh, been there, done that, but it's a master's class about, about just this next season in life. And in the first class, there was this graph that the guy that's leading it shows us. And he, he showed us the different trajectories of a man's life. And I've showed this, shared this with some of you, but, but, he, but he basically took time and wisdom. And he says the tragic trajectory of a man's life is that he grows in wisdom till about the age 30, and then it plateaus and it levels off. And we we see that as like a, a a boy in a man's body, right? That's the phrase we use to describe that, because he's gained wisdom till about 30, and then he just stops gaining wisdom. It's a tragic trajectory for a man. The typical trajectory for a man is that he grows in wisdom till about age 50 or 55, 60 at the most, and then he plateaus off again in his wisdom. And it makes sense why that happens, because at that moment in time, everyone's telling a man to stop taking risks. Like don't take any more risks with your career, with your finances, with your investments. Like you need to pull back and get ready for those retirement years. So you pull back and you stop taking risk. That's a typical trajectory. And he says, the reason why all of the young men in this room are looking for an older man to mentor them and that they wanna be like, but they, they can't find those men very much anymore is because all of those men have pulled back. They stopped taking risk and with risk, comes adversity. They don't want adversity, and so they stop taking risk at that age, so they stop gaining wisdom. So if you're a young man in here, and you're looking for an older man to mentor you, you're looking for a man who is still going out there, who's still getting after it, who is still taking risk, and that risk will bring adversity, and that adversity will bring wisdom. But the reason you can't find that so easily, and praise God, you could find it more easily in this church than in some, but The reason it's not so easy to find it is most of the older men have stopped taking risks, so they stopped going through adversity, so they stopped gaining wisdom. They, too, have plateaued, and you can't go to them for what you're looking for. And this is a problem, but God never intended it to be that way. He intended for us to continue to get out there, to continue to take risks, to exercise faith. And that will mean that we will go through some adversity and we will fail, but that's the way we teach the younger generation anyway. Right, if you've ever had a mentor, they've sat down with you and told you something like, let me tell you what not to do. (laughs) Because in their stepping out in faith and in their taking of risks, they've made a lot of mistakes along the way. And they've actually learned a lot of lessons that weren't necessarily mistakes, just things they couldn't foresee. And so they can tell you, let me tell you what not to do. You might say, okay, Matt, you, you know, I'm a little, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm kind of convinced at this point, I want to gain wisdom, even if it means adversity, but how does that happen? The teacher knows we're asking that question, so he shares us a, a few ways that we can gain wisdom, a few specific ways that we can gain wisdom through this adversity. First one's in verse 5, where it says, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools, this also is vanity he says we can gain wisdom through the adversity of correction and this is good this is a good thing it's correction is a good thing we can gain wisdom through the adversity of correction right the laughter of fools is not lasting it's here and then it's gone it's like those thorns or those brambles it's like the fodder that you use to start a fire you burn it it lights up real quickly makes a lot of heat and then it's gone but correction is different than that The correction that comes, the adversity that comes to the correction is in loving correction is actually it's a lasting thing that can mark you for your lifetime. Right, let's just be honest. I don't I don't think most people like confrontation. I, I don't most people don't like constructive criticism. Most people don't like correction, but God uses them to bring us in line with His best and with His wisdom, which is for our good and it's for our joy. So God is good to redeem even hard conversations and correction to give us wisdom. The second one is found in verse 7 where it says, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. He says, We gain wisdom through adversity for the adversity of overcoming temptation, and this is a good thing. There's good in the midst of that kind of adversity. You know, Part of the point here, I think, is that, that even the wise are tempted to go into ungodly places. Like, even if you and I have a measure of godly wisdom, it doesn't mean we're free from from wanting more. He's going back to his ideas in previous chapters of wanting more money and wanting more wealth and wanting to gain more riches and maybe even doing things that are a little shady to get there, making bad decisions to do it. Even to the point of oppression, the wise are not free from this. We're all tempted with these things. And what he says is that God can redeem that temptation and us walking through that temptation— And overcoming that temptation is is a way that that God uses adversity to give us wisdom. And that is a good thing. God is good to redeem even temptations that don't come from him. But he can redeem them. It's a good thing. He says, the next one's in verse 8, where he says, Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better, better than the proud in spirit. We gain wisdom through the adversity of patience. And this is a good thing. This is good. A lot of times, our adversity comes when we have to wait. It's waiting on something that's important to us, and wisdom doesn't have knee-jerk reactions like this. We gain wisdom in the presence of God when we need to be patient with Him for things. This week in our Apprentice Academy, um, the past week our Apprentice students did the exercise of solitude and. One of the participants in our apprentice academy um, has a long drive to work. And so this person went in their car and used that as their place of solitude, which I love, right? The car is like a solitude bubble to me. Right? You get in there and you can just block it out, um, whatever else is there. So this is kind of his time of solitude. And he had a word or phrase that he was kind of asking God for to kind of give him that he could meditate on. And, um, and the word he got was patience. And it was interesting because as he talked to the rest of the folks in, in our apprentice academy, he was like, started thinking like, do I need to be patient with my wife? Do I need to be patient with my children? Do I need to be patient with these people at work as I'm driving to work? Because there's all these issues. And, and he felt like the Lord was saying, no, no, I need you to be patient with me. Okay? <laughs> and I thought, what a beautiful thing for God to say. You need to be patient with me. If that was the voice of God, what a beautiful thing for God to say. God knows that, that, we're, that we're, we're frantic about getting what we want. God knows that we want it yesterday. And maybe God would be saying to you, like, would you, just, would you be willing to be patient with me? And God can use patience and the adversity that comes along with it. God is good to redeem even our waiting. And this is a good part of adversity. Verse nine. Do not be quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. We gain wisdom through the adversity of our anger, and this is a good thing. I'm not saying our anger is a good thing, unless it's righteous anger, angry being angry about the right thing for the right reason and doing that in the right way. That's, that's a good thing. Righteous anger is a good thing. I'm not, this is not talking about that. I think this is talking about unrighteous anger. So I'm not talking about it's good to be angry unrighteously. It's just good that we have to work through that. It's a good that God redeems even our unrighteous anger. He can redeem it by causing us to work through it. Like, when we're angry, we should be asking ourselves the question, what am I really angry about? Like, when you go zero to 60 pretty quickly in terms of your anger, you should be like, why am I so angry? Why do I go so quickly to anger? And what am I actually angry about? When we get angry about things, we'd be wise to ask ourselves the why. Why am I angry about this? And we'd be wise to ask ourselves, why, why, did, why did I get angry about this so quickly? See, we gain wisdom even by asking those questions and sitting before God on those things. And, it, and God is good to even redeem this sort of part of our struggle with our own anger. The next one's in verse 7 where he says, or verse 10 where he says, Say not why are the former days better than these, for it is not from wisdom that you ask this. We gain wisdom through the adversity of living in the present. I mean, isn't it so much easier sometimes just to like look to the past, just to look to the past and be like, oh, it was so great when we lived there and when we did that thing and when we had those resources and when I had that job and when our kids obeyed us just because we told them to, you know? And like they thought we were the greatest thing in the world and now they're older and there's this struggle. or, Or wasn't it great when like we were in that place or we lived over there isn't it great when those people were in our lives? Remember the, remember those days? And it can be so easy to just kind of go back and think about the glory days, so to speak, and want to live in them. Or they can be so easy then to go, no, I, what about the future? Like, I can't wait to get there. I can't wait to get past this and then into this. Because once we're through this, then we could do this. And then we could go there. And we could be doing these things and thinking about those things. And remember all this stuff that we used to do here that we don't do now? We could do that then. And there's this temptation to look backwards or to look forwards and We don't gain wisdom when we do that. Unless we're looking back to learn lessons. Unless we're looking forward to to look at the way we want things to be at the end. and Sort of reverse engineering our life in godly ways to that end. But when we gain wisdom through the adversity of living in the present. And in this I want to say God is good even to redeem our dissatisfaction. I think probably enough of us came in this morning with some dissatisfaction with the present. And God is good to even redeem that, to cause us to think about it, to gain wisdom, and wisdom is a good thing. Gaining wisdom through adversity is good. Matter of fact, it's so good that the teacher pauses here for a moment just to praise wisdom in a sense in verses 11 to 12 where he says, wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those Who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Wisdom that comes through adversity is good because it doesn't just help us live our lives better, it does. It doesn't just help us live our lives better during the adversity, it actually gives us life. You see the difference? It doesn't just help us to live our lives better in the midst of adversity. It actually gives us life in the midst of the adversity. That's what wisdom does. And if you know Jesus and you have a relationship with him, this is why you know this reality so well. Because he is the wisdom of God. Paul reminds us of that. Jews demand a sign. Greeks seek wisdom. We are like Greeks. We constantly want more knowledge. We want to know the wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, I think we're more like the Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God. And so as we are in Christ, and he is in us, and we look at all this adversity in our lives, we can gain wisdom from it because we have Christ, and he is the wisdom of God. And I say, Matt, that's all great but i'm still kind of stuck at the back i'm still kind of stuck at that first question of why 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 my adversity why am i facing this kind of adversity and you know what the teacher is so wise that he knows this <laughs> he knows what you and i are like he knows that that even though he lays it all out and says like these this is the good in adversity and these are all the kinds of ways that you can gain wisdom in adversity and it's all good and he's trying to point us to the good. He knows us, and he knows we're going to still go, yeah, but why? But I told you, you, you can't know the ultimate reason why. I know, but why? I know. Only God knows that. But why am I going through this? I, I know. And so he knows we're going to do this, so he goes back. And in verse 13, he says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked. I know there are some things in your life that you think are crooked right now. There are some things in my life that I'm like, really, like this just seems crooked. This doesn't seem like, you know, the, the, the path, like the easy, yeah, it's not the easy path. It doesn't seem like the path that I necessarily want. No, it's, maybe it's not. Like it feels crooked to me and I wanna make it straight and God's like, no, 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 I, I like the crooked path. For you <laughs> and here I think we learn our last lesson and it's it's most helpful to think about the purposes of God in our adversity like the most helpful thing to think of our ever of our adversity is not why why this why this adversity why me why us like look I get it I've asked those questions recently I've asked those questions maybe you have maybe you asked it coming in this morning you're asking it right now there are all kinds of things that are more helpful to consider when we think about our adversity. But the most helpful thing I think he gets to at the end, which is to think about the purposes of God in our adversity. Because our circumstances and our adversity, honestly, they are what they are. And we really can't do much to change them on an ultimate sense. I mean, do you want to improve on this thing a little bit? Great. Get an app and do it, and you probably will. Do you want to make progress on this thing? Yeah, put some habits together and some smart goals, and you'll probably change that. But, like, if you go to the doctor tomorrow and you get a diagnosis that you can't control, what are you going to do then? The author of Ecclesiastes is genius because he, he doesn't pull any punches with the actual realities of life, but he's trying to show us the goodness of God even in the midst of it. As vain as he says everything is under the sun, S-U-N. The most helpful thing is to consider what God might have for us in it, Watch, is why he says consider the work of God. And he ends by telling us, listen, life is going to be filled with times of joy, and it's going to be filled with times of adversity. And he tells us that actually both of those things are from God. Last week we talked about the reality that if God gives us wealth, if God gives us money, if God gives us resource, like we're we're to enjoy the things that he's given us. Like God might gift you some measure of prosperity, and there's no reason why you can't, enjoy some of those things. And we're not talking about a prosperity gospel. You, if you weren't here, you can go back and listen to last week. But, but there is part of that that God wants us to just enjoy. This week he's saying, yeah, there are those times of prosperity, and there are also times of adversity. And it's better in his words than mine. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the, in the day of adversity, consider... God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So that we can just go to God in our times of joy and go to God in our times of adversity and go to God in our times of joy and be thankful and go to times, God's in times of adversity and say, God, help me to be thankful and help me to find the joy and the good in these things. Help me to find your purposes in these things. Like We don't know what will be next in our lives. And so maybe the most helpful thing to focus on is what God is wanting to teach us in the present through the present circumstance or the present adversity. And just as Jesus said, let tomorrow take care of itself. If you're not a Christian, um, we want you to know that we can say all of these things because we have a Savior who has walked through all of them. Like, we can say the things that we're saying about adversity and about the challenges of life, and we can talk about God's perspective about it because we've seen God in human flesh. As Christians, we believe that that God cared about us so much, and God knows that we live in a broken world, a world that we broke because of our sin when we sinned against God. Our first parents did in the garden, and we do exactly what they did and would have done. We, We do the same thing. We sin against God and what we think and what we say and what we do. And we create a lot of the, the adversity in, in, in this world. We create all of the adversity in this world in some sense. That, that a lot of the adversity that's in the world, it's, it's here because of our sin. The way our sin has impacted the world and relationships and systems and all kinds of things. But God wasn't good to leave us in that place. God was good to come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Christians believe. And Jesus did not avoid adversity. Jesus was born in a feeding trough. Jesus was raised by very poor parents. Jesus worked a blue-collar job with his father. Jesus went through all of the things in in a a pre-modernized world that, that, that everyone else went through. The Bible says that Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. He didn't have a home that he owned, you know, in the great park, right? Like, he didn't have any of that. And and more than that, Jesus left the comfort of heaven to come to earth. Jesus lived a life that we could never live. That's what the Bible teaches. A life that was lived in perfect communion and relationship with God, that faced every adversity and every temptation perfectly according to the will of God. Jesus, the Bible says in Hebrews, was tested in every way that we are, yet without sin. We can say these things because we have a Savior who went through them. Ultimately, we believe as Christians that Jesus endured the greatest adversity, that Jesus went to the cross. And then on the cross, Jesus bore all the physical pain of the cross, but he bore a deeper, different kind of pain. He went through a different kind of adversity that we will never have to go through. He bore the sins of the world. He bore the sins of of you and of of me, of of us. He took them on himself, the weight of our sin and our guilt and all of our shame. And Jesus took it on himself. He, He went through the greatest adversity. And we believe as Christians, he raised from death three days later, triumphing over the greatest adversity we would ever face, which in the end is death. To prove who he was and to free us to live a life that we could never have otherwise, a life that's forgiven and a life that's free now to to live our lives in communion with God in the midst of the joyful times and the midst of the adversity. I think this is connected to our good news for this morning, and I think it would be something like this, that Jesus endured the greatest adversity, and Jesus triumphed over our greatest adversity. In the end, that's going to be death, so that we can have life in him, even in the midst of our adversity. And this morning, I hope, as a Christian, that's really good news for you. And if you're not yet a Christian, this can be good news for you. We would just invite you to Jesus and the life that he lived for you and the death that he died for you and the resurrection that he had to prove all of these things to you. We would invite you to him. Would you pray with me? Lord, it's, it's because of passages like this, it's because of truths like the ones that are revealed in passages like Ecclesiastes 7 and all over the New Testament that we can have some kind of joy in the midst of our adversity. I'm sure the one that comes to mind for most, most of us is that, that you work all things together for good according to your purpose, right? That you work all things together for good to those who love you that have been called according to your purpose. Lord, we believe that and um, maybe there's some people here this morning that are like I often am saying, Lord, I believe that, please help my unbelief. Please help me to trust you in the midst of this adversity like I've trusted you in past adversities. And so Lord, as we sing this morning, we sing, Lord, that we need you and and we do. And we thank you that as we sing, we need you, that you might say something to us like, I know and I'm here. And so, Lord, we sing to you now. We acknowledge your presence. We ask for your help. And we give you the praise and only you deserve. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.